Welcome to The Skin Reel, your guide to all things skincare, skin health, beauty, and more, curated by dermatologists and true skin experts. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Alice Mina. I'm a double board certified dermatologist and dermatologic surgeon with over a decade of clinical experience. If you're looking for real, practical, unhyped skincare guidance and expertise, or you just think the skin is really cool, then you're in the right spot. I'm so glad you've tuned in to The Skin Reel. Now let's dive in because this is how dermatologists talk skin. Hi everyone, quick disclaimer here before we start. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. If you're looking for help on your skin journey, please check out the American Academy of Dermatology's website, aad.org, where you can search their database for dermatologists near you. It is so important that you have someone in your corner who's well-trained, licensed, and board-certified who can help you make decisions when it comes to your skin health. Okay, got it? Great. Now for the fun stuff. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Skin Reel. I am so excited to have my colleague, Dr. Melchek, on with me today to talk all about hair loss and some of the ways we can prevent and treat this. Dr. Melchek did her undergraduate studies at William and Jefferson College, followed by medical school at Penn State, and her dermatology residency at Virginia Commonwealth. She now practices medical, surgical, as well as cosmetic dermatology in Center City, Philadelphia, and she is a hair transplant expert. So I am so excited to have her on to share her knowledge about hair loss and transplantation with us. Dr. Milchek, thanks so much for being here. Hi, awesome. Thank you for the introduction and thanks for having me. I love the title of this, Losing Your Mind About Losing Your Hair, because in fact, this is something that makes not just women, but men as well. It really, really stresses people out when they notice hair loss. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I think the emotional impact of hair loss is often very understated. And I agree for men and women alike can be very traumatic. Definitely. I know um, after having children and I had telogen effluvium and it felt like all my hair was falling out and I wondered if I would have any left. So I have experienced that myself and I, I realize how distressing it can be. Yeah, definitely. So what should someone do if they are noticing hair loss? What's sort of the first step? Yeah. So the first step for me, and I, I know this is much easier said than done, is to try not to panic because <laughs> there are ways to treat hair loss. And in fact, one of the causes of hair loss is stress. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Sometimes people are so stressed about their hair loss that it's making it worse and it kind of just spirals out of control. So the first is check your own pulse and try to remain calm. Second would be to see your board-certified dermatologist. So there's a lot of information out there on the internet and on social media channels, a lot of misinformation as well. So dermatologists are experts in hair, skin, and nails. So it's really the first step to kind of figuring out the root cause and treatment is to see your dermatologist. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. 
you know, with hair loss, sort of identifying what's causing it and gearing your therapies towards that, the sooner the better. So just go straight to the experts, right? Now, there are different kinds of hair loss, right? A number of things can cause hair loss. What are some of the more common ones? Excellent question. Hair loss is a kind of massive topic, and it can be caused by lots of different things, as you said. And oftentimes it's multifactorial, meaning that there might be more than one thing going on. Whenever I explain it to patients, I kind of like to break them into categories to make it more digestible. So the first category is stress hair loss. So this is telogen effluvium, as you mentioned. The quintessential example, again, as you mentioned, is childbirth. So your body, your mental state kind of goes through this big event, and then all of the hair falls out over three to six months and gradually regrows over the next year or so. It's not just physical stress that can cause this. Emotional stress, you know, divorce, losing your job can all cause telogen effluvium. The second category is internal medical conditions. So things like low iron, anemia, vitamin D deficiency, thyroid problems can all cause the hair to become thin. So in most of my hair loss patients, I do offer at least blood work testing to make sure that everything is okay, optimized internally. The third category is androgenetic alopecia, which is the male or female pattern hair thinning. And this is actually more common than you would think. It's related to genetics mostly, but can be hormonal as well. And then finally, there's scarring alopecia, which has a bunch of categories in it. And the best way to really determine what's going on is to see your dermatologist. Absolutely. And one thing I remember about telogen effluvium is that you will notice just so much hair coming out in the shower and, you know, balls of hair. But some of these other conditions, you don't really notice the hair shedding. You just sort of feel like, you know, your part is wider or your ponytail's not as thick, right? Absolutely. It can be very gradual. When someone comes in to see you for hair loss, you'll do sort of a thorough history and take a look at their scalp. What are sort of the next things that you do? You mentioned maybe ordering some blood work. Yeah, depending on what we see or what I hear on their history, blood work might be indicated. I have found pretty low iron before to the point of, you know, needing transfusion. So it never hurts to to gather more information. Sometimes we'll be able to find a cause through examination and history alone. Sometimes medications can do it. So sometimes we we get enough information just from that. A scalp biopsy can also be really helpful. This involves taking a little piece of skin and looking at it under the microscope, and that can get more information about a diagnosis as well. Now, is it helpful when patients bring in bags of their hair for you to look at? Not particularly. (laughs) It's very rare that we'll find something on examination of that hair. So it's usually not helpful. What is the normal amount of hair you should lose in a day? Excellent question. So it is completely normal to lose about 100 to 150 hairs per day. Like any cell in our body, it's constantly shedding and regrowing. So I also find that if you don't wash your hair every day on hair wash days, you can lose even more. So maybe you lose 
zero one day and 300 the next when you wash it. And that is okay and totally normal. Yeah, I've definitely experienced that because I don't wash my hair every day and then I go to wash it and I think, oh my goodness. But then I I check my pulse, like you said, and I take a deep breath. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Couldn't agree more. Now, what are your thoughts on some of these supplements for hair loss? Let's start with biotin. I'm so glad you brought that up. Biotin historically was used to treat disorders of the hair, skin, and nails. Over the last couple of years, we as dermatologists have gained a lot of useful information about that. Biotin supplementation is really only useful if you have a biotin deficiency, which is incredibly, incredibly rare, and you would probably know about it before you started losing hair. In fact, recent studies have shown that biotin can have deleterious effects, especially whenever ordering blood work. So it can cause false readings of pregnancy tests, hormonal tests like thyroid, and then most scary is troponin, which is a lab that is tested whenever a doctor thinks that you might be having a heart attack. So biotin can alter the results of all of these, and it really doesn't help with hair loss unless you have a deficiency. So I no longer recommend biotin in my practice. I'm with you. I know even back when I was training, we were still recommending that. But now that we've seen sort of how this can mess with your blood levels with some of your labs and the fact that it doesn't even work, I've stopped recommending it as well. Are there other supplements that you would recommend? I usually do not unless you have a deficiency. So I mentioned ordering blood work. If you're low in iron, low in vitamin D, obviously those should be supplemented. There is some evidence for vitamins like Nutrafol and Viviscal. They aren't as hardy of data compared to you know prescription medicines, but there can be some benefits in a subset of people for those certain medicines, but I really don't routinely recommend them. I'm with you on that. Maybe one day, but I need to see some better data before I start recommending this for patients. Say someone has female pattern hair loss or male pattern hair loss. What are some of the things that they can do to minimize their hair loss and maybe even have some hair growth? Lots of different options. I kind of think of them in tiers. So tier one would be the least invasive, which is topical medicines. So the easiest one to obtain would be minoxidil or Rogaine over the counter. It comes in 2% and 5%. So that's very easily to get on Amazon or, or at your local drugstore. There are prescription strength combinations of topical Rogaine in addition to sometimes tretinoin or finasteride or progesterone, and those can be obtained from a physician. The next level up would be pills. So minoxidil is one that has gained recent popularity after the New York Times article. It can be used for both men and women. In women, medicine called spironolactone can be helpful. And then in men, Propecia, which is also finasteride or dutasteride can also be used. So you can kind of have a conversation with your physician and decide which one would be best for you. And sometimes we even combine them too in some patients. 
Absolutely. Platelet-rich plasma is an option. And then finally at the top would be hair transplantation. Yeah. I definitely want to talk about those procedures in a minute. Uh, Back to sort of the Rogaine or minoxidil foam, at least for me, and as a hair expert, you can maybe advise me, I usually tell patients to get the 5% foam, men and women, and that it really takes months to see any difference. So they really have to stick with it to see results. And I find a lot of people stop too soon. What are your thoughts on that? You hit the nail on the head. So any hair loss treatment, including topical minoxidil, takes months and months and months to see improvement. I usually say if you are stable, meaning the hair loss is not getting worse after three months, that's a huge win. If you're noticing any hair regrowth after six, nine months, that's a slam dunk. So it really does take patience. And I agree with you. I always recommend the 5%. I've been using minoxidil, the oral form of it in patients more recently. And and actually a number of patients have reached out after seeing that New York Times article. And I find that it is helpful. But again, you have to sort of start low, start slow, and really make sure patients know that it's going to take a while for them to see results. And to your point, preventing further hair loss is a win in and of itself. Exactly. That's the first step in any treatment regimen here. Yeah. And I like to sometimes combine spironolactone with the minoxidil when I'm doing it orally, because unfortunately, sometimes not only will you get hair regrowth on your scalp, but you can get some hair regrowth in places you don't want. Exactly. Let's talk about PRP, which you had mentioned earlier, because I am hearing a lot about that. And I think it's an exciting treatment for hair loss. And I would love to get your perspective on that. Yeah. So PRP is a a relatively new treatment modality. In fact, the, the first physicians who started using it were orthopedic surgeons, and they were injecting it into joint spaces and seeing that injuries were healing more quickly. In dermatology, we use it for Vampire facial, which is kind of a anti-aging procedure and under eye rejuvenation and then hair loss as well. And it doesn't work for everyone. However, when it does work, it's pretty remarkable. Unlike minoxidil and spironolactone and these other things that we've mentioned, PRP doesn't have a lot of rigorous peer-reviewed studies to demonstrate efficacy for you know, X percent of people. So I think we're still figuring out exactly where it can be useful, but it's a really good option for people who want to avoid using topical or systemic medicines, pregnancy, breastfeeding, things like that. You can't take certain medicines. So it's a really good option. Usually done an initial series of three treatments based four to six weeks apart. And then like anything requires maintenance therapy, every six to 12 months or so. Will you do just sort of a one-time touch-up in those six to 12 months, or do you repeat the series? The one-time touch-up. So then you do it once to twice per year. So platelet-rich plasma, what does that exactly involve? It involves taking blood out of the patient, spinning it down in a centrifuge, and separating it into different components of the blood, and then isolating the part that is rich in platelets out and injecting it back into the scalp. 
The platelets in studies have shown to have anti-inflammatory properties and growth factors, which is why it works for restoring hair. Yeah, that's really cool. And even though the data is not as robust with some of the oral medications for PRP, hair regrowth, I think is one of the best studied and more so than even sort of rejuvenation with the vampire facial. Yeah, I completely agree. It's a hot topic that's studied frequently. Sounds like it's pretty well tolerated. It's just a few sort of pokes on the scalp. They need numbing beforehand. That's usually very well tolerated. I I won't use local anesthesia usually because that stings and burns and is a needle poke in itself and usually just hurts more than the PRP. I've found that applying cold packs to the scalp for 10, 15 minutes before can really help. I've never had anyone say, you know, that was the most horrible thing that's ever happened to me. It's it's usually kind of less painful than people think. It's supernatural, right? You're using your own blood products. Right. No chance for having an allergy to your own blood product. So there's always that. Do you use this for men and women? Yes. And do you find a certain patient does better than others? Or, you know, do you think it really is just variable and you kind of just give it a try and see? Patients who are less severe benefit more from PRP. So if I have an individual who has lost a majority of their hair, PRP is not going to work well for them. But if it's just kind of the early stages, that's a really great time to intervene with PRP. Great to hear. I've heard, yeah, the younger, the better even, and the earlier. True. Absolutely. Early intervention, like you said before. And it sounds like you could probably do this in combination with the other treatments that we've discussed. Yes, absolutely. I have a lot of patients who are on an oral medicine and then in addition to PRP. I always say, you know, using multiple modalities instead of only one can yield better results. Now, say someone has done all those things or they're not a good candidate for PRP. What is next? Can we talk about hair transplant? Hair transplant is a wonderful procedure that can be truly life-changing. Whenever all of those have been exhausted or if a patient has lost a lot of hair in the front, hair transplant is really the best way to get that back. And how that works is from a high level view, taking hair usually from the back of the head and then making it into very, very small pieces and placing it into a more cosmetically distribution, usually on the front of the head. But it can also be used for eyebrows, beards. It's great for a lot of different things. I know back in the day, it seemed like it was pretty noticeable when people would have hair transplants and they would have sort of these plugs. So how has it changed and evolved over the years? Yeah. So hair transplantation has come a long, long way since its origin in the 1980s. Back then, whenever it was done, the surgeons would take a five millimeter plug of hair and then simply inject that into the front of the scalp. So you can imagine how that would look like kind of doll hairs. Now, when we do hair transplantation, we use a 0.8 millimeter device to remove individual follicles from the back of the head and then place individual follicles into you know the transplanted area. So it's much more natural without having those kind of bigger pieces. Gone are the days of taking that big section 
in the back of the head, huh? We do sometimes still use that modality because it allows a patient to keep their hair long. It's called the linear strip method. But if a patient is willing to cut their hair short in the back, the follicular unit extraction method, which is what I described, is definitely preferable. It sounds pretty labor intensive. Is this a long procedure for the patient and for you? It is quite tedious. Usually it takes six to eight hours. The first part of the procedure, the patient will be laying on their abdomen and then on the second part, flip over onto their back. It's not straight through though. We take breaks. You can go to the bathroom. We eat lunch, everything like that. But it can end up being a little bit of a long day. And do you numb when you're doing this? Yes. So we do use local anesthesia here. It's kind of like Novocaine if you know, you've had a dental filling done before. So it's a little stingy, a little burny, but should be painless after that. We've also started adopting using Pronox, which is inhaled nitrous oxide and oxygen. And this is kind of a quick on, quick off, helps with pain and anxiety and things like that. I'll also usually give a little bit of Valium before the procedure just to kind of calm nerves and help you take a little nap during. Now, are there times where the transplants just don't survive or don't make it? Or do you sort of expect not all of them to take and that's why you transplant more than you need? Yeah. So the survival rate of the grafts that are taken from the back of the head are somewhat user dependent. So people who have a lot of experience with extracting the grafts and placing them will have a better survival rate. Overall, it's close to 95%. So a majority of the hairs that you're extracting do survive. I've heard of rare, rare, rare cases where for some reason the hairs just don't take and the hair transplant doesn't work, but I've really only heard of that. It's never happened to me personally. I've never heard of any of my colleagues that happening to, but I guess there's some X factor that can mean it doesn't work, but overall it's highly successful. And what is sort of the aftercare for patients once they've had a transplant? So for the first two days, I ask the patients don't do anything, literally just be a couch potato, hang out because the transplanted hairs are not yet taken root. So we certainly don't want to disturb those in the first 48 hours. No real contact sports for 14 days and no heavy exercise for about one week. But other than that, you have some crusting in the back and a little bit of scabbing, but you can kind of go on with your daily life. It's completely normal for all of the transplanted hairs to fall out four to six weeks after the procedure basically always happens. And then it regrows over the next nine months or so. So there is no magic wand for hair loss. As we mentioned earlier, you really got to be patient, even if you're transplanting. Share with us sort of three tips for hair loss for our listeners, just to kind of summarize everything we've talked about today. I think the first tip would be to seek professional help from a dermatologist. I think we've kind of nailed that point home. If you're not a plumber, you wouldn't try to fix your own plumbing issues. So it really helps to enlist the help of a professional. Staying calm is also important. So stress in any form can cause the hair to become thin. And I would say just have an open mind. There are tons and tons of different options, lots of different combinations that can be used. And yeah, just kind of be trusting in the process and have patience. 
Great advice. And, you know, I feel like at least now we finally do have some treatments that really work and can be done really, really naturally. It's an exciting time. And, you know, I agree with your point about stay calm, seek professional advice, because there are things that we can do to help, if not turn it around, to really help minimize the hair loss. Exactly. So Dr. Milchek, where can our listeners find you if they want to reach out to you or follow you on social media? Yeah. So I think the easiest way would be to connect on Instagram. My handle is dermdoctor underscore Milchak. And I'm sure you'll list it on your page somewhere, but happy to chat about any questions that anyone has. Thank you so much for being here. And this has been really great advice and really informative. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Skin Reel. I hope it's been informative, educational, and perhaps a little entertaining. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to like and subscribe and share with a friend. Don't want to stop your learning just yet? Head on over to theskinreel.com for show notes, blog posts, and so much more. Until next time, skin friends.